uh, we're starting a new series today. In your bulletin is a card that looks like this. Uh, it says Esther on the front. Uh, we're going to start the book of Esther today and spend the next, Lord willing, five, six, seven weeks in this book. So we'd love it if you take that card and um, give it to someone that you know that might be interested in uh, the topic or interested in maybe like Natasha has just never been exposed to uh, a church gathering. So take, take a card, give it to somebody, and uh, hopefully we'll see some more people come and join us next week. So let's pray and then we'll jump in together. God, thank you for your uh, gospel. Thank you for the work that you've done in Tasha's life. We praise you for it. Thank you that in your grace you uh, called her out and you used people to invite her, Lord, into relationship with you. We pray your richest blessings upon her and uh, thank you for the ways you've already used her to encourage us. We pray for the gospel to go forth in power in Scotland and for many, many, many people to have stories similar to hers. All of us are in tremendous need of your grace and our stories are different, but the thing we share is that we're sinners alienated from you. And so we thank you that you invite us to um, a loving relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. As we start a, a new book of the Bible today, I couldn't be more excited about this. The message is so needed. So speak to us, Lord, for your glory and our good. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, There are times that the silence of God can be deafening. Do you ever wonder in those kinds of moments if God really exists, if the scriptures are true, if there's anything more to this than just wishful thinking? And maybe if God is real, you find yourself asking, is he really powerful? Is he trustworthy? And if he's powerful and trustworthy, then what good is he in a world like this anyway? As Tasha so clearly pointed out to us, the world is full of brokenness and hardship. And if God's good and he's trustworthy and he's powerful, then why does it seem like he's losing? I mean, look around you. It doesn't seem that there is a God of all power and all grace who's exercising that power in the way that we would expect him to. He doesn't seem to be winning. If he's all-powerful and all-knowing and all-wise and all-present, then why don't we see him at work? Why is it that an unseen sovereign God can be so hauntingly quiet? Friends, I'm really excited to explore these issues with you because that's what the book of Esther is about. This little story tucked away in the Old Testament that isn't read very often. Um, I, in 36, 37 years of church, have never heard it spoke on a single time. And yet it addresses all of these things so powerfully. What we'll discover together over the next several weeks is that God's perceived absence is never real. That's never really what's going on. His hiddenness isn't neglect. It's intentional. And though at times God seems unseen, he has a power that's unmatched and a grace that's unlimited. When we think about the story of God from the Old Testament, if you're familiar with it, there, there was a remarkable deliverance of the Jews in Esther's day. But it was completely different than the earlier deliverances of God 
in God's people. Uh, With Moses, for example, there were tremendous signs and wonders and overwhelming, visible, verifiable, evidential hands of God at work. And there was no question. There is a God who's more powerful than anything else who's interceding on behalf of his people. Clear demonstrations of the power of God. The exodus out of Egypt in the book of Exodus culminated with God parting the Red Sea. Now, we don't have much water around here, but you've never seen that. I've never seen that. That, that is not a common occurrence. And yet God intervened in a way that there was just no question God exists and He's powerful, tremendously powerful, raw, visible, incredible power. But then we come to books like Esther, where there's no signs, no wonders, no partings of the sea. There's no prophet like Moses, no big speeches, no angels, nothing, nothing. And yet it's in there. Why? I think Esther's experience with God may be far more like our experiences with God than Moses. Not because God's somehow changed, but because he chooses to work in different ways at different times. With Esther, there's none of that. But for those with ears to hear and eyes to see, God is here. We just have to learn how to perceive him. Learn how to see what he's doing and understand him. So that's where we're headed. We're going to find that God always works to protect and deliver on his promises for his people. But we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. So for the first two-thirds of the Bible, what we today call the Old Testament, God's chosen people were the Jews. He picked them out, actually created them to be his special treasure to uniquely display himself to them and give his great promises to them in order that they would then share that in the way that they lived with the world. God's plan was that through his people, the whole world would be blessed. But not unlike us, they strayed from him again and again and again and again. One of the consequences of their repeated idolatry was that God allowed their land to be taken their temple to be destroyed, the precious city of Jerusalem to be sacked. And the very best and brightest people were carried off in what's known as the the Babylonian exile. I'm sure you woke up today thinking about it. Uh, That happened in in 586 under a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Why don't you turn to somebody next to you and say, Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) Doesn't that just feel good in your bones? So the very best of the Jews were deported, They were taken captive, transferred from their homeland into Babylon. Now, why would they do that? It was actually incredibly cruel. You see, the aim in ancient warfare wasn't simply to to conquer a land. It was to obliterate a culture. So what you would do is you'd take the very smartest people and you'd move them back to your home homeland, and you'd indoctrinate them in your ways. And over time, they would intermarry, and there would be no more Jews. That would be the design. It's, it's actually pretty brilliant. So that's what happened. And um, over time, it got worse and worse and worse. So 
Fast forward from that point a hundred years, and that's where we find the book of Esther. If you've never heard of any of this stuff before, you're essentially on the same page as, as everybody else in the room who may have in the past. The Babylonians ruled a long time, but now their kingdom has fallen. It's no more. There's a new group, a new superpower called the Persians. Books like Ezra and Nehemiah in the Bible tell the story of the Jews who returned to Jerusalem. So those who'd been taken captive, carted off to Babylon, attempts were made to indoctrinate them. Some didn't work. It didn't happen. Like who's the most famous person? Daniel. Daniel. Say it again. Daniel. That's great. So Daniel very overtly said, this isn't going to happen with me. I'm not getting indoctrinated. I'm going to stand with my God. And so people like Daniel, a hundred years later, went back to Jerusalem. So we would think of them as the devoted, faithful followers of God, the ones that stood strong against the culture. These are the faithful people. They wanted to go back to God's place for God's glory. But then there's other people like Esther, people who didn't go back. They didn't go back because they didn't want to make the journey. They didn't go back because they didn't want to go back. They had gotten used to a culture full of other gods. They'd been integrated and ingrained in their captor's culture such that home wasn't any longer going back to where the temple would be rebuilt and live with the people of God. That just didn't make sense. So what the book of Esther is going to do is recount for us what happens in the lives of the people that were unfaithful to God. In other words, it's going to recount for us the stories of people like us, the stories of people who haven't followed God faithfully, who have not made much of him. So if you would, turn with me to that little book. And if you can't find it, there is in the front of your Bible some helps. I could tell you what page number it is in mine, but that won't be very helpful. If you don't have a Bible, in the back at the coffee bar on the left, there are several. We'd invite you to take one there, and we'll get going together. These are the Jews that stayed in Susa, which was the capital of Persia, where a king named King Ashurus, or by his Greek name, King Xerxes, lived. It's an incredible story. We're going to have a blast together. This is going to be a wonderful, amazing experience, even if I don't sound as cool as Tasha. So before we read some of it, though, why Esther? Why would we take the time? Why in the world would we take two months to talk about what happened to a couple of disobedient Jews living in a city that no longer exists among a people no longer in power? Why would we do that? That seems crazy. Why would, why would you come again? Today you didn't know, but why would you come back? Why would you spend your time here? Friends, I'm not aware of a more relevant, challenging, powerful story in the Bible for us today. I simply don't know of one that would be better for us to hear. I think as we go through, you'll find that. One of the real pressing issues of our day is the question of God's existence. Is God real? Does he exist? Is this book true? For the majority of cultures throughout the history of the world, 
belief in some supernatural power, some supernatural God or gods, has been an indisputable part of the very fabric of life. There's, there's a very small percentage of the world that has not believed that. And yet there are today entire cultural stories that don't include a God of any kind. And if professors like Lawrence Krauss at ASU get their way, America will join those cultures. That's where our society is headed, unless God and the people of God intervene. The book of Esther is massively helpful in understanding how do I see God when I can't see God? If Jesus isn't here and I can't touch him, I can't talk to him face to face, I can't poke him in the side, then how do I know he's really real? When all around me, what I see is carnage and chaos and pain, why should I trust the few wackos that tell me he's there? Well, Esther's going to tell us. And it's going to tell us in a way that's similar to our experience. Here's what I mean. This book contains no mention of God. Not one. There is no overt story to make it religious in nature. No one confesses sin. No one prays. There's no visions. Nobody hears the voice of God. No one even utters his name a single time. There's no apparent concern to follow the Bible. No miracles. No temptations resisted. Nobody saying yes to God. No fasts. No reading of scripture. Nobody telling their kids about him. God, are you even there? The story seems to be crying out. Isn't that like our experience? Haven't you had those kinds of days? Maybe today. Maybe as Tasha talked, you thought, that's nice, but God must be over there in Scotland because he ain't here. That's what happens in Esther. Let's be honest. When you're not in this room, do you ever think of God and his presence? Is it palpable? Do you have an awareness that he's with you? Or are you a functional atheist? Many of us have stories where God doesn't seem to show up when we needed him the most. Maybe you've been told that God is everywhere and yet you seem to find him nowhere. If so the book of Esther's for you. It is God's love letter to you to help you understand how he works. So that's a pretty good reason to study Esther, isn't it? But we have another. We have a free set of steak knives. If it's not simply enough to help us understand that there's an unseen God, there's also the issue of, of a troubling morality. Sometimes people make Esther out to be the perfect heroine who followed God and displayed this tremendous sacrificial courage for the sake of God's people. She is uh, the woman we all want to become. Well, at least half of us. Sometimes Esther gets portrayed that way. If she gets portrayed that way, you can pat the person on the back and say, I know you've never read the story because that's not really who Esther was not really her story. Fathers, Esther is not the kind of gal you would be happy for your 
freshman and college son to bring home at Thanksgiving. She's not the one you would have wanted. She had familial baggage. Her parents were gone, so an older cousin, Mordecai, raised her. Those of us raised by cousins know that makes for issues. We'll see next week that she willingly entered the Persian version of The Bachelor. She lost her virginity to a wicked pagan king, and she did it so well he asked her to come back every other night after that. She hid her identity. She made no mention of God. This isn't a shining bill of health in her relationship with God. She's unfaithful. He wasn't the most important thing to her. She kept her identity hidden and seemed driven by selfish motives. Again, not the kind of gal you'd be thrilled to have at the Thanksgiving meal. But the book is named after her. And it's in the scriptures. Right smack in the middle of her sin, God in his grace works through an imperfect woman for his glory. And so when we wrestle with stories like Esther, we've got to ask, how is it that that sexual promiscuity turns out getting used for good? Now, some of us in the room, that doesn't bother at all because you did it last night. But others of us, that's not, we can't really picture God like that. How is it that God can use evil and turn it into results in something good? So there's this whole question of a troubling morality that is throughout the book. And don't we live with those questions? Don't we have some moral ambiguity? Don't we battle with sexual ethics? Don't we struggle with, what do I do to people that have harmed me? We're going to encounter all of that stuff. And some of you um, that were, were homeschooled, it's really going to bother. And yet it's in here. We've got to really struggle with it and ask, what, what is God up to? Where is God at work today? How do we see him when we can't see him? And how in the world do followers of God live in a world that thinks we're ridiculous? That's what we're going to find. Have I piqued your curiosity? I hope so. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now, in the days of Ashurus, this is the king, the Ashurus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ashurus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showered the riches of his royal glory and splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Check it, 180-day party. Why? Because he's an arrogant, prideful, bigoted, disgusting man. That's why to put it gently. Verse 5, And when those days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So 180 wasn't enough. We've got to top it off with seven more. King Assurus was a man of incredible power. This is the top dog in the world at the time. 
the most important person alive. The one in charge. 127 provinces. Not only was he powerful, but he's wealthy. It took him 180 days to show off the full extent of his wealth. So this is a man of great wealth and great power, and he also had a bit of a problem. And it's a big problem in this culture. For the week-long feast, the one at the end, the king invited everybody to his place. And what they did would make an ASU frat party look like a bunch of old ladies playing bingo. Right? (laughs) Check out verse 8. Look at verse 8. Drinking was according to this edict. Quote, There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Those are haunting words. The worst thing you can ever possibly do is say to someone, do whatever it is that you want to do. Have you found that in your own experience? (laughs) That when you gained the freedom that you thought would lend to more freedom, you just shackled yourself in torment? So that's what happens. So there's no compulsion. Can you imagine? Men in a room for a week, no constraint, do whatever you want, drink as much as you want. There's no limits. Even if you've never heard the rest of the story, you already know what happens next, right? If you get a group of men together and say, drink as much as you want. Now, the alcohol isn't the problem. It's the abuse of it. Drink however much you want and do whatever it is you want to do. What's going to happen next? Women are going to get abused. Happens all the time. Hasn't changed today at all from this day. So women will get treated like sex objects, guaranteed. That's what happens. Look at verse 11. Once he's hammered, the king says this, Bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. I I wish we could tarry here for about an hour, but just for a moment. Do, Do you see how disgusting that is? That a man in his drunken stupor, in a room full of people in their drunken stupor, would say, bring in my wife so you can gawk over her. It's not enough for you to look at my wealth and to see my power. Look at my wife's breasts. Look at her rear end. Look at her face. You don't get that. I do. That's not a man. That's repugnant. He wanted to turn her into an object for lust and then discard her. Except, we've got to move on for time. Uh, the queen didn't want to roll like that. Verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. 
good for the queen. Right? She stood up to evil. That was the right thing to do. But in this culture, you didn't do that. You didn't tell a man no. Especially not the king. Men, women aren't people, not objects. They are to be treasured, cared for, and protected. Their spiritual beauty on the inside is what matters the most about them. Look around you. These are God's daughters. They are to to be cared for, not lusted after. Don't be a total jerk like this king. Don't make the women take the stance that this queen had to take. Jesus can do that in us. He can give us the ability to treat the women of our church as older women as mothers and younger women as sisters in all purity. God can do that. What would that be like for God to raise up men who treated women with dignity and respect? It would be a tremendous apologetic for the gospel because that's not the rest of the men of the world. So the queen said no. Now what's the king to do? Verse 16. Then Medichent said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti does wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Assyria. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will sing, since they will say, King Ashurus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him and she didn't come. Ooh. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. In other words, we can't have anything other than our chauvinistic, disgusting culture. We can't let that happen. Rise up. We're the ones in power. Verse 19. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him. Let it be written among the law of the Persians and the Medes, so that it will not be repealed. That Vashti is never again to come before King Ashurus. Let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree came by the king, it was proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is vast. All women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. I like that part. There's so much irony in this book. This advice pleased the king and the princes. No, duh. And the king did as the Mumakin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in his own script, to every people in his own language, that every man to be the master of his household and speak according to the language of his people. With that, the queen was removed. Queen no more. Why? Because she refused to be treated like a sex object. So she stood up against evil and more evil was committed against her. Has that ever happened to you? It probably has. If you're living faith outwardly, that is what will happen to you. There's much more that could be said here, but just a comment and then we'll move on to some concluding thoughts. 
Let's praise God for His grace. Apart from His grace and His kindness towards us, which we don't deserve, all of us would be wrapped up in this kind of ridiculous behavior. We are no better. We just do it a little more culturally, contritely. We're the same. But let me close with a a couple of thoughts. Did you catch it? We, We just read, essentially, an entire chapter of the Bible, and there's no mention of God. Nothing here that would communicate anything about his presence, his power, his work. Nothing. Nothing. Is that troubling to you? It seems a bit odd, doesn't it? Isn't the book about him? But he's not there. The entire book's going to carry on in that fashion. God is not seen. If you follow the story of Esther on a purely human level, it's nothing more than a series of long coincidences. One after another, after another, after another. That's the way life feels. The story's written this way in order to drum that out of us so that we feel that too. If the king hadn't gotten sloppy drunk, he wouldn't have called for his wife to be paraded. And if the wife had not refused to come, she wouldn't have had her crown removed. And we'll see next week, if the king wasn't a pervert, he never would have started a beauty pageant. And if he hadn't started a beauty pageant, Esther never would have slept with him. And if Esther never would have slept with him, she wouldn't have become queen. And if she wouldn't have become queen, she would never have had the occasion to speak out in such a way that the Jews were saved from annihilation. If the Jews weren't saved from annihilation, Jesus would not have come. If Jesus did not have come, you would not be here today. There would be no salvation, no gospel. None of it. That's what hangs in the balance of the story of Esther. And yet God doesn't come up. Isn't that helpful? Doesn't life feel that way sometimes? What appears to be nothing more than one coincidence after another after another turns out to be the very things God uses to accomplish his purposes. And we learn from that that there's nothing that happens in our lives, Christians, that hasn't first passed through the hands of a good, loving, sovereign God. But there are days that it does not feel that way. God is always at work in spite of appearances. He is the unseen sovereign. His hand at times may be hard to see. His voice may be hard to hear. His ways might be confusing and hard to understand. But God is always at work for His glory and the good of His people. Let's pray. God, this is a message we urgently need to hear. We live in a world that, frankly, if our eyes aren't tuned by your word and by your spirit to understand who you are and how you work, it's, 
it's difficult to believe you're there and to see your hand. And yet your scriptures tell us unequivocally that you're real and you're powerful and you're in charge and you're king and you're working all things together for the good of your people. Father, would you use this book to throw a blanket of your goodness over us and to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We see you most fully in Jesus at the cross. May we respond to you as the resurrected King. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.